night has fallen on the desert. And all across the desert southwest. From Dolzura, California to the lower Rio Grande Valley in Texas. People are driving all over to spend the holiday with family and friends. Because that is one of the many blessings of the American Southwest, that you can travel without too much worrying about snow. But then the winter storms come, as they do sometimes. And all of a sudden, it's blizzard conditions and white-knuckle insanity. Can't see a thing. What happened to the world around me? It is Christmas Eve. The rain has been pouring down upon the high desert, turning to snow in the dead of night. And the higher elevations, wild winds, real weather out there. I love it. The dog loves it. Gives you a sense of purpose while I'm out walking through this. Like your John Wesley Powell. Back home in God's country again where the weird things are. Out here where maybe I will again need to get in the habit of not seeing another soul for days or weeks or months at a time. Strange times. The radio station in Joshua Tree is running Christmas music tonight instead of Desert Oracle because it's Christmas Eve and I guess I'd spoil it. So I thought I'd put out this podcast get a chance to say thank you all for listening to the radio program and podcast over these past several years. was good to meet a lot of you in person at these radio shows on the road. This episode was recorded live at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, California, just last Friday. A real treat for me for many reasons, especially because Red, Blue, Black, Silver was there live and in the flesh. I hope you enjoy your holidays. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. And I can say that now, again, because we're close enough to the desert. And if you've ever planted anything in your garden, your yard around here. And you guess them know-it-all neighbor. They might look at your rich green plants and say, you know LA is a desert. But it's not true. It's coastal chaparral. A little bit too much rain. And every now and then, every couple of years, if we're lucky, it gets just like this. With snow on the mountains, the air is crisp and clean, 
The filthy streets are clean. And you think, well, it's kind of nice here. <laughs> Welcome to the live Desert Oracle radio show at the Philosophical Research Library. The Philosophical Research Society. Founded by Manley P. Hall, who was one of the great early 20th century researchers and writers and philosophers, working on a new problem we had at the beginning of the 20th century. The problem was people did not believe in the old religions anymore. They still went to church, a lot of people, to temple, to whatever they did. But people didn't believe it anymore. And especially as millions of people came west, and so many people settled here, especially after World War II, People were looking for meaning. And so people started looking back at the old philosophers at Eastern mysticism, at Native American religion. And the old pagan mythologies of Greece, of Rome, of Egypt, of the Celtic countries. Pagan just means country people, but it ended up meaning religions that were not Christianity, that were not mainstream. And here where people were uprooted in a place where they were severed from the ties of family, of community, they looked around to try to figure out, what do we do now? What am I supposed to believe? There were radio preachers, all kinds of radio preachers. One was the Reverend Curtis Springer, who broadcast out of Isaacs, California, in the Mojave Desert, Soda Springs. Reverend Springer would get on the radio and say, Hello, friends. Come on out to the beautiful desert. No smog, no fog. You'll eat healthy, stay for a week, stay for a lifetime. And he got a bunch of winos off Skid Row, the nickel in Los Angeles and lured him out to Zizek's. He named the place Zizek's because he decided that was a word. <laughs> and because it was a word, and it was at the very end of the dictionary, I guess a dictionary only he had, it was the last word in health. <laughs> so come to Zizek's and get a new look on life. The problem with Dr. Springer, he was a self-appointed doctor, like all the interesting ones, <laughs> is he had no right to be building a complex of churches and radio stations and dormitories and cafeterias on this land in Soda Springs just west of what is now Mojave National Preserve. He had a mining claim which did not allow building. But he did a lot of construction because they'd bust in the winos, they built stuff, and then they realized it was an alcohol-free environment. 
And pretty quickly they'd cash out and go back to LA. In the 1970s, after decades out there, the Reverend Dr. Curtis Springer was arrested by the federal government for building a town on a place he did not own. They let him out eventually. He died a few years later. It is now run by the California State University system. You can go out there and take an adult education course on the weekends. You can uh, paint watercolors, learn about desert conservation. But it doesn't quite have the weird spark it used to. Another mystical philosopher who wound up out here was Aldous Huxley, probably best remembered for writing Brave New World. Brave New World was a far-fetched science fiction story where everybody was on some kind of mood pills. <laughs> Thankfully, that never happened. <laughs> He started going blind when he was quite young. He went to Oxford. And then he moved out here, like so many writers, to make some money writing movie scripts. In fact, Disney hired him, Walt Disney, to adapt Alice's Adventures in Wonderland for the screen. And whatever he turned in, I guess it was even too weird for that, because it, that was not the script that they used. He moved out to the desert, the Mojave. Not the more popular Mojave of today, Joshua Tree, 29 Palms, Pioneer Town. He moved up to the area that today is between Victorville and Palmdale. And he settled there on some acreage not far from the old Yano communist commune from early in the last century, the ruins of which are still there. And he engaged in many experiments. One was to take all kinds of psychedelics. And these opened his mind to such a degree that he wrote a short book on the subject called The Doors of Perception. And two Los Angeles UCLA film students love this short book so much that they named their, uh, their band after it, The Doors. Huxley also invented a cure for his blindness. The thing is, nobody else believed it, and it didn't seem to actually improve his vision. But he had a series of exercises, things that he would do, and especially out in the bright, clear light of the Mojave High Desert, he began to believe that his vision was better. He also wrote a very curious children's book called The Crows of Pear Blossom, that highway that connects the 14 and the 15 is called Pear Blossom Highway. The Crows of Pear Blossom is one of the grimmest children's books you'll ever see. It's still in print. It tells the story of a pair of crows. They would have been ravens, but he could not see. Who oh, keep laying eggs, but a rattlesnake keeps crawling up this tree that they live in and eating the eggs. So the crows invent a series of gruesome tortures for the snake, eventually killing it. And then they have baby crows. So it's a happy ending. At one point, they attach the rattlesnake between two branches of the tree and trick it into eating rocks so that it's so weighed down in such terrible, crushing pain. 
that is torn apart. So this was one of those golden books for children. When I was a kid, it was written for his niece, it's dedicated to his niece, and I believe to this day, although she'd be quite elderly at this point, she lives in Yucca Valley, just outside of Joshua Tree National Park, where she has lived for most of her life. And some years ago, I was directed to a post she put on Facebook where she wrote about how much she loved her Uncle Aldous and how much it meant to her through all these years that he had dedicated this book about killing a snake to her. <laughs> it was an effort that he was making to create a new mythology for the West. For the millions who had come here from other places and were unmoored. Who had been dug up, usually of their own accord but also by World War II, the aerospace industry, and for people like him, Hollywood, which lured people here because you could make a living writing things even if they never got produced. Then there were, oh, I should say, when Elvis was dying of throat cancer, in 1963. He had himself injected with a massive dose of LSD. Something that Timothy Leary would repeat many decades later, but inspired by Huxley. Philosophers like Huxley and Manly D. Hall left a uh, rich body of work, books on mythology, on history, on philosophy. Huxley also wrote a great essay-length book called The Desert, which should still be in print, but it's only in those sort of print-on-demand versions today. But you can find it online. After 1947, when a private pilot in Washington State named Kenneth Arnold had a remarkable sighting of nine objects, boomerang-shaped, that seemed to be skipping across the sky at high altitude over Mount Rainier in Washington. Suddenly, all the people who used to be into the occult just sort of switched over into UFOs. It happened almost overnight. It really was truly remarkable. I'll give you an example. An ancestor of mine named Mead Lane, same weird spelling, established the Borderland Science Research Institute in San Diego, California, where he proposed the first ultra-dimensional or interdimensional theory to explain what UFOs are. That they weren't nuts and bolts aircraft. They were something else entirely. Something that slipped in and out of our dimension, in and out of our consciousness. Something that would later be picked up by prominent UFO researchers like Jacques Vallée, John A. Keel, and from Los Angeles, there were a number of sketchy individuals who made a living from promoting the UFO alien story. One was a Variety journalist, Variety, the show business magazine, named Frank Scully. Frank Scully wrote a best-selling book called The Truth About Flying Saucers. That was almost completely nonsense. <laughs> And, if you've ever wondered, was the character on The X-Files named after Frank Scully? The creator of The X-Files, Chris Carter, says no. It's Ben Scully. It had nothing to do with this prominent UFO writer. 
Frank Scully especially promoted the experiences of a guy named George Adamski, who had fantastic stories about meeting aliens in the desert after sort of conjuring up flying saucers that would come down and land. Near Desert Center on the 10, southeastern corner of what is now Joshua Tree National Park. So this is a place where seekers have long collected. Some have left a rich legacy. Some have left a legacy a little more questionable. But there were lots of them, and they also intermingled with science fiction writers of the time, often at Clifton's Cafeteria in downtown L.A where science fiction writers, including Bradbury, would meet weekly, go to the cafeteria, get some meatloaf, jello, whatever, coffee, and sit in that weird cafeteria with jungle scenes and such, and talk about strange new ideas for fiction. We are still living in that culture, even though that was 70, 80 years ago now. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, let's welcome the musical director of Desert Oracle Radio, Red, Blue, Blind, Silver. storied names in science, Isaac Newton, John Dee, Roger Bacon, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, and of course Jack Parsons, the occultist and founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, were alchemists and magicians. Jack Parsons grew up in Pasadena with a wild and questing mind. He was building small rockets as a child and would become one of the crucial inventors of the science of rocketry. But his interest and his practice of ritual magic led to his ouster at JPL and Aerojet which were his creations more than anyone else. And in 1945, he found himself with all the time he needed to practice ritual magic. His frequent partner in these rituals was none other than L. Ron Hubbard, who had his own career cut short in the U.S. Navy for being crazy. <laughs> and shared Parsons' interest in science fiction and in sorcery. For reasons still in dispute today and with results that are difficult to prove but do make an interesting argument, Parsons and Hubbard began a long ritual that they called the Babylon Working 
It is beyond the scope of a family radio program such as this to go into great detail about exactly what those rituals entailed. But the important part of this is that the crucial ritual took place in the Mojave Desert and was completed on January 18, 1946. A completion that would be verified by the appearance of the entity Parsons and Hubbard called the Scarlet Woman. When they returned to Pasadena, she was there waiting. In the form of the artist and muse, Marjorie Cameron. I returned home, Parsons later wrote, and found a young woman answering the requirements and she was waiting for me. The main requirement was that she'd have red hair. <laughs> she enjoyed the bohemian scene at Parsons Pasadena Lodge, an old mansion on Orange Grove Avenue. But she was not originally aware that she had apparently been summoned by a ritual magic in the desert. Only when she reported her sighting of a luminous disc, possibly the first sighting of the modern UFO era, a good year before Kenneth Arnold's sighting, did Parsons and Hubbard let her in on the secret. They had opened a hole in the sky, a hole in space and time. There's something for many things had come through it. Jack Parsons died in 1952, allegedly from an accidental explosion in his home laboratory. By the end, he had been betrayed and abandoned by both his rocketry peers and by his magical lodge. L. Ron Hubbard found success as a science fiction writer and eventually as a prophet with his own fairly successful religion. And Marjorie Cameron lived a long life as an artist and underground star of the occult scene in Los Angeles. Instead of building spaceships, by the end of his life, Jack Parsons, an expert chemist and inspired alchemist, was making explosives for low-budget Hollywood movies in his garage. But NASA and JPL and human spaceflight and even the Cassini mission to Saturn do not exist on our timeline without the rocketry genius of Marvel Whiteside Parsons. The pioneer we remember today is Jack Parsons. Speaking of Marvel, his given name, if you look at his photographs today, especially a famous shot taken in 1941, the dashing, goateed, rocketry, and chemistry pioneer may well remind you of the Marvel Comics character Tony Stark. The broken-hearted businessman, chemist, and rocketry pioneer who becomes the Iron Man is drawn by the legendary Jack Kirby, who had his own direct connection to the great old gods of space and time. And Jack Parsons will surely bring to mind the Tony Stark as portrayed by the actor Robert Downey Jr. Those scenes, by the way, from the first Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man movie, 2008, were filmed in the Alabama Hills, just off the 395 of the Eastern Sierra Desert. The setting for hundreds of movies and television shows about cowboys, and superheroes, and space monsters. One of the eeriest places that you can visit today is a place called Rocket Sight Road, which crosses the old 20-mule team road south of Boron at the far end of Edwards Air Force Base, 
just west of Kramer Junction on the 395. There is a jagged and burnt mountain there. Clearly visible from the public roadway and is studded with the metal hulks of all rocket engines tested by NASA and JPL and the military. All of them bolted to the rock. So they want to hurl themselves across the sky. There was a mysterious explosion at the Rocket Science Laboratory on September 7, 1990. A mushroom cloud rose over the lab as lines of ambulances raced down Rocket Site Road. People who live along Highway 58 there were not told that the toxic cloud was hydrogen chloride from a multi-rocket and missile explosion. The poison cloud slowly dispersed over the western Mojave. Captain of the Starship Enterprise, Captain Pike. His story was that he was from Mojave, the town of Mojave, California. In the original Star Trek story, Christopher Pike is from Mojave, which has been turned green by a sort of terraforming project on Earth. Instead of being the beautiful, clean desert with Joshua trees and creosote, it's a giant, miserable farm like south of the Salton Sea today. No wilderness, no nature, just producing food. Sometimes science fiction is visionary. And sometimes it's just repeating tropes from our past. I want to alert you all to something. And draw your attention to the right side of the stage. that could potentially let humans live forever. 
That would be the phone. Now, I'm kind of mostly blinded up here in these lights, like Albus Huxley, so if you want to come on up, just come on up. Rob, can you see anybody over there? Oh, come on up. It's Los Angeles, for God's sake. What are you going to be, run out of town for being weird? Oh, a great shyness has happened. There, I see somebody right there. Welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. Just uh, stay close to that, that microphone because uh, we're having some trouble with the connection. Yeah, sure. What's, what's on your mind? Okay, I guess um, I guess I'll share my story about Freddy. Uh, oh, Freddy, that sounds creepy already. It's an entity that I met when I was 14 years old. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll describe it to you. Maybe somebody else has had a similar experience. It would drop coins, like pennies and quarters, from oh, the ceiling. Like, like, like a ceiling just like this. They would sort of materialize out of nowhere. In your house? No, this was at an office uh, that belonged to a, a, my dad's friend at the time. And I went multiple times. Are there child labor laws? <laughs> I wasn't working. I wasn't, I wasn't working. But uh, he told us about this thing that had been happening for a few weeks. And my dad thought it would be cool to take us to go see what it was, what it could be. And the three times that I visited, it would just throw coins or grapefruits, anything that you could find, would materialize out of nowhere. And this is the specific story. This is something that I think about all the time. Uh, I was standing in the office, so it's a bland office, um, and I was standing across from my little brother, who was three years younger than me at the time, maybe about this distance apart, and a rubber band ball, like an office rubber band ball, materialized in the center of the room as if it was coming from behind an invisible curtain. So you could almost see half of it, and then you saw the whole thing. It bounced across the room and went to my little brother. And I'm not sure what that was or what I saw, but I'm convinced whatever it was, was able to sort of hide between whatever curtain we can see and whatever we can't see. And uh, I, I, it's honestly something I've thought about. I'm, I'm 35 now, and it's something I've never forgotten in 20 years, seeing that ball come out of thin air. Have you looked into this sort of experience since you've I have. grown up? Yes. Have uh, you found some parallels? Parallels? Uh, people talk about poltergeists, which... I didn't get the impression that this was uh, a mean entity. It seemed really interested in the fact that we were kids uh, and it wanted to play. That's the vibe I got. Um, it wasn't as nice as other people in the office. You were 14. Your brother was how old at this time? He was 12 or 11. This is a classic time when these sorts of manifestations come up in, in, in family life. Um, a lot of the German researchers in the early 20th century found that poltergeist cases, and poltergeists were not always malevolent, scary things. Sometimes interesting things just happened. And they found that there were almost always adolescents involved. And the theory which is tough to prove because we have no idea what the mechanism is, is that something about the hormonal changes between childhood and adulthood attract this sort of spiritual energy and connection. Did you hang on to any of the stuff that... Here's the thing, you couldn't. If you put it in your pocket, it would go away. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it would... You could request things, too. Um, we were playing around with it, and we said a two-dollar bill. It was almost as if it had a, a bank or like a bag of just everything you could imagine that would be in the area. And it would pick up. It wouldn't bring them out of nowhere. It would, it would find things that were there and keep it and hold it. And it would throw it to you. It would roll it under your desk, or you could pick it up, put it in your pocket, and then you wouldn't be able to find it again. 
Could you see where it was coming from, or did it just sort of come into your field of vision? It was always a little bit right above your eye line, like this. Just out of sight. Just above your eye line, yes. The only time I ever saw something appear was the ball, uh, where it came out of nowhere. But um, most of the time it was too high up on the ceiling, and it would almost be like it was throwing it down from the ceiling. And coins would ricochet around it would make a lot of noise. You consider it a, a positive experience? I consider it a positive experience because uh, it had nothing bad happen, but I could imagine if it wasn't as nice. There was another person in the office who would open up a door, like drawers to the desk, and a lock would fly out and hit him in the face. Wow. So it wasn't as nice to him, <laughs> but it was nice to us. That is fantastic. Have you ever gone back to the site where it happened? Uh, I haven't, no. Wait, wait, can you tell us where it happened? It happened in Tampa, Florida. Uh-huh. Um, the man who owned the office died of cancer about a year after all this started happening. So it's probably a CVS or something now. Yeah, yeah, the building is probably torn down. Um, but I, I was worried that whatever it was was going to follow me home. Yeah. I was afraid of that. And none of that happened. Um, but we still have, like, videotape recordings of things, of, of, of seeing some of the stuff happen. Um, but, uh, like the camera would shut off all that classic stuff, the energy is being sucked out, but, uh, yeah. It's oh, that is fantastic. It's thank, thank you so much for, for calling in. That's one of the best ones I've heard. All right, somebody else come up here. Uh, I just want to say real quick, I lived, I lived in Bear Blossom, and I'm just so happy to hear you talk about it. You lived in Bear Blossom? Yeah. yeah, I moved out to, uh, after, I moved in L.A., and then after it was... Not my favorite place. I moved out to the desert, and I lived in the house owned by George Lazenby. He was one of James Bonds. Yes, yeah, yeah. Five, he owns five hundred acres out there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was—it's right next to the monastery near um, the uh, Catholic monastery. Beautiful yeah, monastery. Yerba, you yeah. can go out and, and stay there for yes, a weekend. Yes, yes. It's, like, it's like a huge green piece of grass, and uh, yeah, just I, I, it's a really special place. And I'm really happy you got to talk about that. Oh, fantastic. It's a beautiful place. It's uh, underappreciated right now, and I hope that more people will start going out there yeah, and realize that there's a lot more to the Western Mojave. Yes, Devil's Punch Bowl Community Park. Visit it. It's a really cool place, and yeah. it's in that area. All right, cool. Thanks so much. Well, let's see. Um, oh, you should. Come on up. Thanks. I saw you put your hand up. I mean, uh, I, didn't, I didn't put my hand up. You put your hand up. <laughs> I was just sitting there. Uh, pick up the phone. What's on your mind? Who? I cannot see who's behind the mask. Who is this? Uh, my name's uh, Brendan. 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 Brendan Mays, everybody. What are you doing here? I was just driving through the neighborhood, Ken, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I saw the colored lights, and I saw the, uh, all the people lined up, and I thought, hey, I should just stop by and see what was going on, and here you are. Yeah. This is amazing. What a coincidence. You, you, you've been here before? I've never been here before. I live right down the street. Yeah, you yeah. And I just, I walked through here, I walked the dogs up there in Griffith Park. Did you leave the dogs outside? Yes, I left the dogs in the car. Did you roll the windows down a little bit? I rolled them tightly. What, what, I snapped through the windows. What, what have you been, I guess it's cold out. What, what have you been up to? I haven't heard from you in a while. Yeah, I've just been, uh, you know, working my nail salons all throughout town. Yeah. Collecting rent and uh, making sure they're supplied with, uh, you know, the, the glosses and the, uh, the little things that push back the cuticles. All around town. So that's your, that's your, you haven't been out in Joshua Tree for... I've not been out to Joshua Tree for a while. They have a little problem with my, uh, got this collar on my ankle. It's really tight when I leave the county. Yeah. Uh, you left a, you left kind of a mess out there. Yeah, I left a little mess out there. A couple of messes out there. Um, I heard some people saying that, um... Here it comes. Go ahead, say Just that... You weren't welcome in the high desert anymore because of the, the situation with the, the re repossessed Airbnb. Yeah, I kind of got out of control with the Airbnbs, Ken. I was, uh, was converting everything I possibly could to an Airbnb. <laughs> converting my, uh, my, my water store, the alkaline water store. Yeah, yeah. I converted that to an Airbnb. Yeah, that's a commercial space. It is. Uh, it turned out I couldn't rent it out. That's right. 
and uh, in a series of uh, burned out cars I was having right there. <laughs> right, right. Those uh, Eldorados I had parked in a row, you know, buried halfway in the sand, sticking up. Those were Airbnbs. It was artistic. It was, it was artistic, yes. That's what I said. But uh, it wasn't, wasn't allowed on the permit. Well, they're cracking down a bit. I, I hope once uh, the craze kind of slows off, you can, I know you love it out there. You sneak back. Um, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I'm down the low desert now. Okay. Brandon, thank you so much for calling in. It's good seeing you. Yeah, it's good seeing you again, too. And, and uh, say hi to the dogs. He did raise his hand. I think it's time to tell some campfire stories. Of course, since the pandemic, we're not supposed to have open fires inside anymore. But we've kind of rigged something up here. extreme of desert animals. Now a lot of people when they think about desert animals that are a little weird, a little strange, maybe a little dangerous, they think of rattlesnakes, black widow spiders, scorpions, Six-inch centipedes at the bottom of your sleeping bag. But this one's a little different. First of all, it's little. It's only about two inches long. Second of all, it's a mouse. It's a mouse called the grasshopper mouse. The desert grasshopper mouse has some real weird habits. Primarily dietary, because its main food consists of scorpions and centipedes. And when it catches and eats a scorpion, it starts with the stinger. It pulls off the stinger with its mean little hands. <laughs> and it sticks it in his little mouse mouth and choose it. And something kind of magic happens, kind of like, you know, at mass with the wine and the blood and stuff. The venom of the scorpion gets the grasshopper mouse hot and is sort of transmutated into a painkiller that then allows it to eat the rest of the scorpion and have no ill effects. Now, if you've ever stepped on even just a common desert scorpion, not the real nasty ones like the bark scorpions, it hurts. It feels like somebody hits you with the claw end of a hammer. And it throbs, and you can't walk on it. This doesn't affect the grasshopper mouse. Same with centipedes. Centipedes have a milder venom that they sort of chew in. A lot of people don't think about centipedes because nobody really wants to think about them. One of the worst things that centipedes will do is climb up your walls when it's a little moist, like after a storm. And they like to get somewhere dark and quiet where they'll never be noticed. So one of the places they like to nest is behind picture frames. So next time you're in one of those $300 a night vacation rentals in Joshua Tree, 
just sort of gently lift up that picture frame, and you might find a nice nest of them. And it's going to be bad art anyway, so just throw it out of the fire. No loss. A lot of those vacation rental owners will buy those paintings you know, 20, 30 at a time from whatever local artist. And that is great. I support the arts, as we all should. But you'll see that same variation in all these different Airbnbs and Wonder Valley and 29 Palms and Joshua Tree and Pioneer Town. Once the grasshopper mouse completes the kill and completes the meal, it throws back his head and opens his mouth as wide as it'll go and it howls like a wolf. <laughs> This is no exaggeration. Really, the only difference between a wolf howl, not, not a coyote yelp, is a wolf howl, is that coming from the grasshopper mouse, it's much more higher pitched. But it's got that same up and down, that long, lingering, spooky fade out. On a quiet night, when the wind's not howling, especially in the springtime and early summer. Go outside of wherever you are in the desert, outside your tent, outside your campsite, outside your little cabin, and just sit and listen. And you'll hear them. And when you hear them, they're very close. Often they're just hanging around the perimeter of the porch light because that's where the scorpions are coming in. There are grasshopper mice in the Midwest, in the Intermountain West, but the desert grasshopper mouse is the one whose diet consists almost entirely of venomous scorpions, venomous centipedes. So they deserve, they deserve our respect. A little earlier, we were talking about the numbers of interesting new religions and philosophies that came out of Los Angeles during the unsettled early and mid 20th century. And along with those, there were a number of cults. Cults differ from philosophies or religions in that they demand everything from you. They want your time, they want your energy, they want you to cut off family and friends who aren't into it. One of these cults that developed out of the breakdown of Jack Parsons' old OTO Lodge in Pasadena became known as the Solar Lodge. It was funded primarily from a New Age bookstore called Eye of Horus just across the street from USC. And being in the years following Aleister Crowley's death, Crowley was head of the OTO globally for a while. He had endorsed Jack Parsons having a lodge in Pasadena for Southern California. But he did not like L. Ron Hubbard. Once Crowley passed on, the Parsons exploded. There really wasn't an OTO for a while, although there were people who were interested in it. This new version rose up, and from the proceeds of bookstores and donations, moved down to the boundary between the Colorado Desert and the Mojave Desert along the Colorado River, a little tiny town called Vidal, or Vidal. No one really lives there, so it's tough to figure out what the old pronunciation was, Vidal. What it's mostly known for was the one place where the famous cowboy, Wyatt Earp, owned a home. 
he and his wife had a small home there. Well, he was usually out in Los Angeles trying to get work in the new cowboy movies. Eventually, the home was lifted up and moved to another location because the rest of the town burnt down. So it had some bad luck. The Solar Lodge people moved in. They acquired the gas station, the motel, the diner, and numerous tracts of 50 or so acres just to the west of it. Here, they lured a lot of people out and had them start building stuff. There was no power to most of it. There was no electricity, so there was no air conditioning or swamp coolers. It was a fairly miserable place to be with summertime temperatures, 115, 118, 120. A little hotter today, but not very comfortable then. A number of the members of the Solar Lodge had children with other members, sort of loose communal sort of family situations. One of these children was fooling around in a shed where the most valuable materials that the Solar Lodge owned were held. And these were numerous papers, diaries, spell books of Aleister Crowley. The kid I believe was eight at the time, was playing with some matches, a matchbook. And whether accidentally, on purpose, or some combination, the shed lit on fire, and all of these rare and precious papers from Crowley were destroyed in the blaze. Lodge members held a meeting and pronounced judgment on the child. What they decided was he would be locked in a wooden box out in the sun to serve out his term. He had a bucket for a toilet, a bucket for water, and give him a little food now and then. Word leaked out, some of the members didn't like this, and the sheriffs raided the compound. They found the boy, they released him. He was shaken, but his health was all right. And then a bunch of the members of the Solar Lodge were put on trial in Riverside County. It was called the boy in the box trial, and it was a sensation covered by the Los Angeles Herald Examiner and a bunch of other papers at the time. It's also covered on local TV in Los Angeles. It was starting to get a lot of attention when another story sort of took over in the scary cults of the late 1960s coverage that dominated so much of local news at the time. What happened is a guy who had passed through the Solar Lodge and apparently picked up a lot of its more diabolical philosophies. Although this has never really been proven, all we really know is that there were contacts passing through, had been arrested outside of Death Valley, California at a place called Barker Ranch up the gully in the Panamint Mountains near Wingate Pass. This was a old cattle ranch that never made much money. The people had the lease, let it go. And it was rented to a group of hippies from Los Angeles. It is where this group spent time before and after what we now know as the Manson murders in Los Angeles. October of 69. 
Charles Manson had told his followers that they were going to be the new rulers of the world after a global race war and apocalypse that he called Helter Skelter of the Beatles song. They would commit the murders, escape to the desert, go underground, because Charles Manson had seen a show called Death Valley Days hosted by Ronald Reagan when Manson was in prison in Northern California. And this episode repeated a wonderful mythology of a couple of miners who slipped into a hole in the alluvial plain at Wingate Pass and dropped into a lost civilization where they found mummified men sitting around a table made of gold. They had gold spears. They had beautiful leather coats and aprons with jewels sewn in. There were windows carved into the cave where they could look down from the top of the Panamint Mountains and see the green of Furnace Creek below. They came out of the hole and immediately came to Los Angeles to try to find some people to fund a larger expedition. They didn't really get any takers the first time, so they contacted the Smithsonian in Washington, said they would sell them their find for $5 million. This was in the 1930s. The Smithsonian declined. They then went to the Southwest Museum, now the Autry, and they found a couple of interested people who said, well, at least go out and check it out. So they went out. But what happened in the meantime, according to the miners, there had been a huge winter storm. It had changed the country all around. They could not find where they dropped through. But that promised underground civilization was what Charlie Manson was looking for. And he told his family that once they got down there, there would be magical trees that would have different fruit for each month of, month of the year, and that would feed them completely. And they'd wait it out, and once the global war had finished, they would come out and rule over the survivors. So the news of the Manson family being arrested at Barker Ranch eclipsed the news of the boy in the box truck. Most of the people charged in locking the kid in the box were released for one reason or another. It was hard to figure out who really did it. It was kind of a group thing, no real leader, or at least none that would take responsibility. The way the Manson family was caught in the Panamints is that family members stole some dune buggies and vandalized National Park property. And that led three agencies, NPS, National Park Police, Indio County deputies, and the California Highway Patrol to make a raid on the place. They rounded them all up threw them in the back of the four-wheel drive law enforcement vehicles. One of the cops said, I'm going to make one more pass. Walked through, checked every room. Nobody there. Checked the bathroom. Checked the tub. Nobody there. There was a little sink with a little vanity. One of those little half sinks. And he figured, what the hell? Open up the cabinet and folded up like a puppet behind the drain trap was Charles Manson. Pulled him out, put the cuffs on him, they took him in, put him in jail in Inyo, Independence. The little jail underneath the courthouse is still there. They had no idea who these guys were, guys and gals. So they kept him there for a few days until a prosecutor was driving back from Los Angeles with that day's LA Times with a picture of the suspect in the Manson murders, Charles Manson. That's how they got him. And they never stolen dune buggies. 
and vandalized some Death Valley National Monument signs, they might have gotten away with it. This has been Desert Oracle Radio, live from the Philosophical Research Society in Los Feliz. I'm your host, Ken Lane. This is Red, Blue, Black, Silver. Thanks so much for coming. From Amboy to Zizix and across the Great Mojave Desert, we broadcast usually on Fridays. You can hear us on Z107 KCDZ in the High Desert, Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley, Pioneer Town. KZMU in Moab, Castle Valley, Utah. And on your podcast thing in your pocket right now. We appreciate you coming out in these weird times. And we'll probably be back, I don't know. You think things will ever be open again? This might be it. So, it's good to see everybody. See you in three or four years, I guess. Thanks a lot and good night from the voice of the guest.